Hi everyone, welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and I'm glad to have Mariana back with me for this episode. How are you doing, Mariana? Good. I'm uh, very glad, very glad to be here. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. A couple more weeks, and I'm heading out to Zambia. Yeah, just a couple of weeks. Uh, I'll be doing PICA work while you're in Zambia, and not as much as you're doing. I'll only be out there for like a week and a half, but... Um, yeah, we're both going into the field at the same time, so that's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, summer is upon us. Yep, summer is upon us, and it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun one, an anxious one, but a fun one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I should I should definitely give an update to our listeners regarding my absence. <laughs> Everyone thought you died. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. So. Uh. <clears throat> yeah, so I, I haven't. I've just been dealing with some with some stuff, and uh, Jonah's done an awesome job keeping the podcast afloat. And thank you to our co-hosts, our guest co-hosts Camden and Leon as well, um, for helping us out with that. Um, that was really awesome. But uh, everything's settling down a bit, and once I um, once I figure things out a little bit over the next few days. Hopefully, I'll be back to recording a lot more often. So, yeah. Yeah, and I maybe I'm hoping, I think we can fit one more uh, while I'm here in the States. You and I can record one more episode in the next whatever it is, two mm-hmm. and a half weeks. Yeah, And then so. after that, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to record stuff in the field. And if I have access to internet, get it to you if, if, if you're going to continue to record. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you want, or we could um just end this season or or whatever. But um, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we'll do one more before I leave. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, and so we'll let you guys, the listeners, know um if we can squeeze out one more, and we'll let you guys know what we're doing by then. We'll probably have it figured out. Yeah, it's it's kind of like <laughs> I I understand why, like how some people have podcasting as a full-time job mm-hmm. and like when we're doing it sort of as like a hobby <laughs> and like people are waiting on us I mean not like we have that many fans but like I like to think you know the way that I the way that I look at other podcasts like is there a new episode out is there a new episode out like, right right yeah. <laughs> and I imagine some people do that with us and so I won't apologize for us being inconsistent because um whatever life happens and Mm-hmm. we're busy people are dealing with things um so yeah so don't um be waiting with bated breath for episodes all the time <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. may not get one yes but thank you for sticking with us yeah um, definitely yeah by the end of the summer i think maybe like say autumn we'll have we'll go, we'll get back to something more yeah yeah once i'm back in like once i'm in school it's a lot easier mm-hmm. but up until then i'm like traveling and stuff so yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to talk about our endangered species today. Um, we're sort of entering some new waters, no pun intended, because we're covering a fish. <laughs> <laughs> but we're both not fish people. We're obviously land vertebrate people. Um, and... Rather than, for this endangered species episode, rather than covering a specific species, we're going to cover a group of five species. Um, particularly, specifically, we're going to talk about sawfish. And there are five species of sawfish. And they're all endangered. And, you know, a lot of their biology and stuff is similar. So it just seemed appropriate to talk about them together. Um, and if you don't know what a sawfish is, you should just stop and Google them right now because they are just um, awesome fish, like unreal. And they're actually one of the most threatened groups of sharks and rays. And some people think they might be the most threatened of all marine fish. Um, And I was sort of inspired by a recent National Geographic article about sawfish and about research that's going on with them and sort of the threats that they're facing. And that sort of inspired me 
to want to do this as an endangered species episode. And also we've kind of like, you know, we started off doing the Hawaiian monk seal and then we did, I don't remember what next, but we've covered like every, almost every sort of vertebrate taxa, mm-hmm. um, you know, birds, amphibians. We didn't do any reptiles, but um, so I think we should do some fish. I wanted to do some fish stuff because um, we don't really talk about fish a lot. So, yeah, as Jonah was saying, um, they're actually really awesome looking creatures. Uh, they uh, kind of have a, a shark or ray appearance. And the reason they're called a sh- sawfish is because of their rostrum, which actually looks like a chainsaw. Um, so if you haven't already looked them up, look them up now <laughs> because it's they're actually really, really cool um, looking animals. They're long lived animals with some studies estimating maximum 35 year lifespan. The green sawfish, one of the species we'll be talking about, is even thought to live longer than 50 years. Um, so that's that's a very long-lived species. Um, and with that usually comes late sexual maturity, which the sawfish have, um, long generations, so uh, because of their long lives, and low birth rates. And all that combined, um, as, long as, as well as the threats they face, um, their life history makes them more susceptible to extinction and, and to, um, threats. So. Yeah. And we should also say, have a disclaimer that, um, there's a lot of things that are unknown about sawfish. So we just can't, you know, cover certain areas of their biology or whatever. Um, but we're also going to generalize because we're talking about several species, but, for each species, you know, some of some things aren't known about one species that are known about others and things like that. Um, so like we've said, there's five species. Um, we have the large tooth sawfish, dwarf sawfish, green sawfish, small tooth, and narrow sawfish. And all five species are found in marine intertidal areas and wetlands. And there's actually a lot of overlap in their geographic distribution, um, particularly in four of the species where they incur- occur in the same, in a similar area, um, or at least have a large area of overlap. And because of this, there can be some issues with misidentification. And so there's a huge question mark about distribution for each of these species throughout most of their known range and throughout most of what's thought to be their range. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to give you a couple, um, some like a brief idea of where each of these species is found, but it's kind of hard to describe, you know, some of these distributions. So we're going to have a link to, um, the IUCN red list website and it's going to have like the page with all five of the species and you could click on each species and it has a map and they have really good maps that give that show you where they're known to exist, where they're extinct and where it's unsure um, where researchers are unsure. Um, so definitely check that out afterwards. Um, so the large tooth sawfish is um, the most geographically widespread and they occur in four distinct subpopulations. So on the Eastern Atlantic, Western Atlantic, Eastern Pacific, and then the Indo-West Pacific. Um, and they can reach three meters or about 10 feet in length. So pretty big. Um, but they're actually, they've actually gone locally extinct in the majority of their historic range. So for example, in the United States, it hasn't been seen since 1961. And the IUCN lists it as critically endangered. Um, The dwarf sawfish is the smallest. um, Actually, that's not true. Even though it's called the dwarf, it's not the smallest. Um, (laughs) It's one of two of the smallest. Um, It reaches about 2.6 meters in length, which is about eight and a half feet. And it probably only still persists in Northern Australia, coastal waters of Northern Australia. And it's considered endangered by the IUCN. The green sawfish is the largest species. Um, 
with some being recorded as large as seven meters in length, which is 23 feet, which is huge. Yeah. Like, I can't, ima- I mean, from from what I read, like it's rare to find them this big. Um, most of them are under six meters or, um, you know, like 19 to 20 feet. But that's, that's still huge. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're thinking about like, a 20 foot great white shark or something we think that's big like at this yeah. sawfish like just how long is the rostrum like it's kind of scary oh yeah um anyway so the that's the green sawfish and it's dis- distribution on the east african coast is sort of uncertain in most areas um but it's known to occur in parts of the middle east like the red sea and the persian gulf and then also in coastal waters from Southeast Asia to North and Western Australia. And it's considered critically endangered. Small tooth is recorded as long as six meters or 20 feet. And they're found in the Caribbean and Southeastern US. And its presence along the Atlantic coast of South America is uncertain. Um, but their stronghold is definitely like Florida and um, uh, the Caribbean, and they're considered critically endangered. Um, they're also known to exist, I forgot, that they're also known to exist um, in a, an area off of Sierra Leone in West Africa, but the rest of the range in along the Atlantic African coast is completely unknown. Um but if they're just found in Sierra Leone, I imagine that they're probably a little more mo- widespread. Mm-hmm. And then finally, we have the narrow sawfish, which is the smallest as far as, um, you know, maximum size. And it's been recorded at 2.3 meters, which is seven and a half feet. And it's interestingly, it's the shortest lived of the species. Um, so a lot of the other species have similar lifespans. Um, but the narrow mouth or the, the narrow sawfish, sorry, is only recorded at living is only thought to live about nine years, um, which means they mature a lot faster and they have shorter, um, you know, generation times and, and stuff like that. And they're found in South and Southeast Asia to Northern Australia. And then its presence is uncertain in East Asia, Middle East and sort of around the Horn of Africa. And it's considered endangered. Um, so they're they're pretty widespread in coastal waters. And there's evidence that sawfish have been documented in as many as 90 countries around the world, which is a lot. <laughs> um, most of the countries. and Or half the countries, rather. Um, yeah. And it's known that about at least 20 of these countries have experienced local extinctions completely. And 43 countries have lost at least one of the species. So, and as you can tell, they're all critically endangered and endangered. So they're an endangered, so they're not doing very well. Um, there's been a lot of extinction for, local extinction for reasons we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, so before we get to um, all the threats and, and what's been happening to them, uh, we'll give you guys some of their life histories uh, starting with the, their habitat, the microhabitat varies by species, but generally they're found in shallow coastal waters, estuaries, uh, coastal rivers, and lakes. And they're usually found in water of just a few meters, but some have actually been recorded foraging as deep as 88 meters. So that's about 280, 290 feet about. Uh, for small tooth sawfish, one study focused on their relationship between size and habitat depth and found that smaller fish preferred shallower water and larger fish ventured into deeper water. And so there's probably a similar relationship for all the other species as well. Uh, narrow sawfish, uh, Jonah's already spoken about how uh, how they differ from the others, but narrow sawfish uh, also sexually mature uh, sooner, so they sexually mature at two to three years old, uh, whereas the other four species will usually reach sexual maturity at eight to 12 years old. And that goes along with um, 
what we said in the beginning about their slow life histories. Uh, and in several species, males have been found to reach maturity earlier than females. And what's really cool is, uh, well, hold on. Uh, so as far as reproduction, uh, they're viviparous, which means pups are born as live young rather than as eggs. Uh, and what's really cool is one genetic study of the small tooth sawfish in Florida found evidence of parthenogenesis. So uh, for anybody who doesn't know, that's basically reproduction without the need for fertilization, often called virgin birth. Uh, so basically the female can reproduce without a mate. It's pretty cool. Uh, I think we've spoken about it before. Um, I can't remember, but uh, I don't know. But <laughs> uh, so in that study where they found the parthenogenesis, it, they found seven sawfish head genes suggesting that they only had a single parent. And obviously it's you know difficult to do this kind of genetic research and more research has to be done. But this may be a way for the sawfish to cope with uh, their small population sizes. And therefore with small population sizes, they have you know a lack of available mates. Um, so that's that's really awesome. Uh, as for litter size, uh, the average in all species is 12 pups. And that's actually not a lot when you consider their slow reproductive rates, um, the years at which they reach sexual maturity, their high mortality from fishing and bycatch. Uh, at birth, the large, large tooth pups can be as large as 90 centimeters. So that's nearly three feet. So that's, <laughs> that's a really big fish to give live birth to. <laughs> I know. That's like, I was thinking... This one must have been born by one, a female that was 23 feet long because... <laughs> Absolutely, it had to have been. I mean, I'm sure yeah. it is the bigger the... I mm. imagine the bigger the female, the larger her offspring are going to be because that's yeah. generally how it is with a lot of species. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a big pup. Um, so it's, it's thought in northern Australia's pups are born in brackish or saltwater and then they spend the first four to five years of their lives in freshwater rivers and floodplain waterholes, uh, at which point after that they migrate to estuaries or marine habitats. So nursery habitats um, also include shallow water mangroves, which can provide protection for, for the pups, especially in areas like Australia where crocodiles are known to prey on sawfish. And to speak more about the, the quintessential sawfish habitat, um, as it Mangroves are definitely very important for them. River deltas and floodplains, shallow sand or mud flats. And of course, this means that they can tolerate brackish water and fresh water, um, as we've said. And in several cases, they've been recorded hundreds of miles upriver. As far as um, more freshwater occurrence, the large tooth sawfish is even famously found in the, in freshwater Lake Nicaragua, where the individual where the individuals spend most, if not all, of their lives. Um, so that's obviously a freshwater lake in Nicaragua, <laughs> in case anybody. <laughs> it's a huge lake. I looked it up. Yeah, it's it's really remember. close to the coast. Like it's just mm -hmm. a thin. I I think that um, there's a river connecting it to the ocean, and so that's why they say mm -hmm. like they spend most of their lives in freshwater. Right. But um, like I was thinking about. I think one of I think the farthest upper river they found one in Australia was like over 300 miles. Mm -hmm. And I was imagining like, well, they're probably not swimming in these rivers anyways because of crocodiles. So never mind. Oh. But like <laughs> imagine you're just like in the shallows scooting along and like one of these things just like whoosh, just like oh. slices your foot. Oh I mean, not like they're, they're not predatory like that. Yeah. But, um, mm -hmm. right. you yeah. know, just by accident, like I yeah, saw a video like of a I saw a video of them trying to release one. And like once it was let go, like they were trying to get out of the way because it's sort of thrashing yeah. around in the water. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that'd be dangerous to to get hit by. Um, and speaking about the rostrum, um, for a long time it was thought that sawfish use the rostrum for sort of digging around in murky water because that's sort of the habitat they live in. It's um, murky, but in two thousand eleven. Um, there was a study that found sensory pores along the rostrum and they, you know, they did some experiments and they dissected ones that had been killed as bycatch or something. And they were able to find that these sensory pores sort of pointed upwards and working with 
with captive sawfish, um, they were able to find out that these pores help the sawfish to detect movements or electrical fields sort of directly above the rostrum. And so this, of course, is useful in, you know, murky coastal and river waters because when prey swims over them, they can um, basically, like, saw the fish in half, (laughs) which is what these researchers saw them do. Um, They were able to just cut them in half, like, right when they detected them. They just whip around the rostrum and slice them in half, which would be so cool to see. Yeah. Um, But they don't have, even though they're, you know, they're related to sharks and rays, like we said, but they don't have jaws like sharks, so they don't have teeth. They sort of have, like, rough bone, which is more like rays. Um, And so they can only eat prey or pieces of prey that can fit into their mouth because they can't, like, tear or anything. So, you know, chopping prey in half like that is sort of a nice way to make it more bite-sized, I guess. Um, (laughs) Anyways, that's just, like, that that was just so cool to me um, reading about that. But then again, imagining like, you're in these shallow waters on the coast or something. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 amazing because when I mean when you look at them um, uh, in pictures or videos, um, you know it, obviously it's it's a really remarkable looking rostrum, um, but you just you you can't really tell how sharp um, how sharp it is until you've seen it at work. Um, but so so yeah, so as far as conservation. Uh, all five species of sawtooth have declining population trends, um, as we mentioned earlier about how many countries have seen them uh, disappearing. Uh, they have legal protection in only 19 countries, uh, and that's not much when you consider how widespread they are. Um, but gladly, uh, CITES listed them under Appendix 1, and trade is completely banned under under CITES, um, you know, which says a lot about the threats they face. And like we've already mentioned, uh, there is a lot of uncertainty about their biology, their distributions, uh, the status of each separate species uh, because of a just a, a lack of data and information. But the most studied is probably the small tooth species since it does occur in the U.S. And the Endangered Species Act requires scientific studies to um, inform their recovery and their conservation. Uh, one of the most important and challenging things that researchers are trying to identify, of course, is what has caused such a rapid decline in you know, this, this monstrous and really remarkable fish and why they've uh, been disappearing so quickly. And there's obviously a lot of work going into this um, and a lot of work um, also going into understanding their basic biology. Um, all of that is tied together. We need to, we really just need to understand these fish um, more completely, um, to, for conservation efforts to be even more effective than they, than they are now. Yeah. So the sort of the two sawfish strongholds, um, in the world are in Florida where the small tooth occurs and where the large tooth used to occur. And then Northern Australia, where the other four species all overlap, um, to some extent there. So in Northern Australia, it makes sense that they still occur there because fishing pressure is low, the rivers aren't dammed, and the habitat's, you know, relatively still unaltered and wild. Um, So I'm, I'm sure it's just very clear why that is a stronghold. And then, you know, in Florida, I'm not sure when the small tooth was listed, but, you know, we've just we've come a long way in the United States with our fishing practices and stuff. So that's probably helped the small tooth to to hold on in Florida. But outside of these regions, you know, like I sort of highlighted with when I was covering each species, there's just so much uncertainty. Like if you look at those IUCN maps, there's a lot of red areas that indicate where they've gone, probably gone extinct and then there's a lot of grayish black areas, which shows where their presence is uncertain. I mean, like huge, like thousands of miles of coastline. It's just a, a question mark, which is 
interesting because like because they're so coastal you'd think that you know we'd have a better idea because we have easier access to trying to locate them mm-hmm. or people are catching them more right. um but I, I don't know that's not the case um mm-hmm. but there still are like a few other places where the species some species still to be seem to be hanging on um like papua new guinea which is in a lot of cases just an extension of that northern australia population um the bahamas which is an extension of the florida population bangladesh brazil and even sudan which was interesting when i read that i was like (laughs) sudan has a coastline it's just like a small (laughs) a small (laughs) portion um but you know in these countries Um, A lot of these countries are undeveloped, and so they still are facing a lot of these kind of, you know, threats that other fish species are facing, you know, like bycatch being entangled in fishing gear, especially for the sawfish because their rostrum can get so easily tangled in nets. Um, Poaching for the fin trade and habitat loss. So habitat loss is a pretty obvious one since coastlines and wetlands have been for a long time, been under a lot of pressure from human development and those habitats have just generally been degraded. Um, And I also imagine in some places, you know, this is just my thoughts, but rivers being dammed has to affect them in some cases, just because of the habitats they live in. They live in these deltas and stuff And when a river is being dammed, you know, there's less sediment outflow, less nutrients coming out through the delta. And that's sort of going to have a bottom up effect on the ecosystem. So, you know, lack of nutrients is going to first affect smaller organisms and then work its way up to trophic levels until, you know, there's not enough prey or something for sawfish. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm kind of... um, interested how that might be playing a role yeah um and then their fins are worth a lot of money for traditional soups in some reasons so maybe a lot of people have probably heard of this with sharks Mm -hmm. um shark fin soup trade and it's the same thing um the sawfish are a part of that and so that's you know contributing to their decline um and the teeth of the the rostrum of the saw-like rostrum are also extremely valuable and they can just one tooth can be worth several hundred dollars. Oddly enough as spurs for cockfighting in central and South America. (laughs) That's crazy. So horrible and sad that these awesome animals die because of cockfighting. Like Uh just goes to, goes to show what I said a couple episodes ago when I was with Leon that, Domestic animals are at the root of so many issues. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid chickens. Um, anyways, and then interestingly, um, and this is sort of what I was also basing my idea of like the trophic cascade affecting them off of. It's been found that the decline of sawfish is also strongly connected with the decline of other fish in coastal waters. Um so the, the Nat Geo article, which we'll obviously have in the um, the show notes, highlighted a couple, um, some cool research, interesting and tragic research that some people have been doing. Um, one woman, her name is Ruth Leaney, and she works for Natural History Museum in London. She conducted interviews in West and Central Africa and found that younger generations were not familiar with sawfish. They've never seen one. While older, the oldest fishermen, you know, remembered when they were abundant. So this Mm -hmm. is obviously something that's happened within, you know, a human lifespan. Um, But in other parts of Africa, she did find that, um, you know, particularly in Madagascar and Mozambique, that fishermen had caught a sawfish or two in the past few years. So, you know, they're still around there, but most countries had experienced a complete loss according to her interviews um Mm -hmm. 
and it probably happened within the last 20 years according to like what she was she was finding um and it the nat geo article said that in some of these countries like along the african coast sawfish used to be so abundant that the rostrums were used as um to build fences <laughs> wow oh, wow and I mean, they were so prominent, or the sawfish were so prominent in some of these countries that sawfish were on currencies. They were part of folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's pretty sad. Um, and then another um, project called the Gulf Elasmo Project um, has spent a long time doing similar research along the Persian Gulf and basically found the same thing that they used you know i'm sorry this is it's along the persian gulf where they were so abundant that people would use the rostra to build fences um and then now they're lucky to you know find a sawfish catch a sawfish every two to three years and along the coast of south america basically the same thing has has occurred Mm -hmm. so Indiscriminate fishing around the world have probably contributed the most to the decline of all these sawfish species. Um, and we actually haven't we actually haven't talked a lot on the podcast about the fishing industry. We should definitely do that more mm-hmm. often um, yeah. because it's yeah it's a big it's a big topic a, a big and controversial topic. But um, there's there's so many fish species that have declined just from the from indiscriminate fishing and lack of um, protection but uh uh speaking of that um in australia legal protection of the sawfish has changed the fishing industry's practices Um, for example prawn trawling has improved its methods to increase the survival of bycatch which obviously includes sawfish jonah mentioned it just a few moments ago Um, you can imagine how easily um, they catch their rostra um on the on the nets and you know they can't get out so they've Bycatch is definitely a big concern, and in Australia, they're doing a pretty good job about that. Uh, but of course, legislative protection um, can never be the ultimate solution, and it certainly isn't in sawfish conservation. Uh, we've talked about this before in other episodes, but you know that kind of approach generally doesn't work in developing countries, um, and also solutions are often context specific. Uh, so, and that's a challenge because sawfish are very widespread, um, and there's still a lot of uncertainty about their occurrence. Um, so you have, you know, a very widespread species that's becoming more and more rare. And so, uh, protecting them is just going to become more and more complicated and difficult. Um, again, in Australia, they're doing a a pretty good job with the conservation. They're employing local people to study and search for for sawfish, we've spoken about this kind of community conservancy model before. Um, we we really like this model uh, because getting an investment from local communities uh, is really the best and most effective approach to sustainable conservation, to, to conservation that's going to um, continue to be effective um, for many years to come. And, you know, as, as with any species, uh, caring about the sawfish is is the first step that um, toward that kind of conservation, and you know they're they're not the you know these charismatic you know mammalian megafauna uh, that <laughs> that populate the endangered species lists, um, but they're they're really awesome. So I don't think I think with enough um, enough efforts like like these community conservation uh, models, um, and as more people become acquainted with the species, I think it'll it'll get even better yeah and i think just like sort of what i said before these fish were a big part in many cultures around the world and places that they've gone extinct locally and so whenever a species is a part of a culture in some way whether it's folklore or or whatever i mean obviously the the sawfish are unlike any other species. And so people, you know, people that have seen them or know them or remember them, they know what they are and they know they're, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, having that to sort of work with as a base in some of these areas for getting more buy-in. I mean, basically what I'm trying to say is that there already is buy-in because people know of these these fish and they have a place in some cultures. And so yeah, yeah. involving people in research, you know, especially because these fishermen know these areas so well, some of the old timers might know where they used to find sawfish. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just really valuable information. Yeah, um, they got to pass it on to the new generations. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's just, uh, it's always like these kind of, well, obviously all endangered species and stuff, the things that they face, it's sad. But these this kind of situation where it's just gone completely, there's just been such a huge loss huge and rapid loss that like the youngest generation has never even seen one of these that that kind of situation just always really bums me out yeah Um, it's always really disappointing especially because those kind of rapid losses it's hard to you know it's hard to model or even determine how much time they have left Um, yeah so yeah especially in this case with all the uncertainty Mm -hmm. but there is a really cool research effort that's currently underway um that i have never heard of before and i'm just like i'm just endlessly fascinated by everything sawfish at the moment um but researchers are able to use environmental dna or they call it edna to detect sawfish presence by sampling water And that allows them to detect traces of sawfish DNA in the past three to four days over like at most a half mile stretch of water, (laughs) which is like, it's, it's really cool. And obviously, um, well, a couple things, this is definitely going to help with some of the uncertainty about distribution and presence um but it also you know a half mile isn't that that um big of an area so it's gonna also require a lot of effort and it's definitely a game changer for you know answering these questions but it also is going to allow researchers to focus their efforts for conservation, basically. So once they do detect, you know, as they collect data over however long they're doing this, um, it's a, it's a big collaborative effort spearheaded or coordinated by a guy named Colin Simpfendorfer at James Cook University in Australia. And they, he's basically been sending out these eDNA detection kits to researchers at the moment from 15 countries um, in order to employ this and you know once they detect sawfish in certain areas and they start to get a better idea of how they're distributed it's going to allow them to focus conservation efforts you know if they find i mean i i imagine that this is going to allow them to discover some st- populations that are still hanging on that we didn't know about yeah and that's just really key for implementing you know conservation action moving forward yeah, especially because, you know, finding pockets, you know, finding, you know, pockets of refugia is probably what they're going to be discovering most because they're so sparse now. And those are the those are the spots that, that they really need to protect. Um, that's just like such awesome research. I, mean, I know. I, I, so, <laughs> how did how does someone come up with that? Like, you know, it's one of those research projects where like if you brought that idea to like to Brent. <laughs> he would have just given you like one of those looks like that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's how all great things start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's that's really great. Um you, you kinda you really had to think outside the box with especially with modern technology. Um so uh, I guess in closing, um, you know, talking about these five species and the threats. Um, like we said earlier in the podcast, you know, we, we had to generalize a little bit just because, you know, uh, the information is, you know, lacking and we need to do more research. Uh, but it's, 
it's, there's also a reason for that, which is that all five species are, are endangered or critically endangered. And it's astonishing to me that such a widespread and form, you know, formerly common species would, would decline so quickly. Um, but, and sawfish definitely have the capacity, um, to act as flagship species for coastal waters. You know, they are really awe-inspiring. And as Jonah mentioned, their decline is also associated with other fisheries. Um, so it's it's a really exciting time in sawfish research and potentially a turning point in their conservation, especially if we continue to, you know, think outside the box and um, discover these awesome ways to track them, especially and find them. Um, so <clears throat> it's just a matter of, so it's really just a matter of more research, obviously more funding. And also, I think there's a good point you made, Jonah, about um, their, their, what's the word I'm trying to find? Their, gosh, what's that word? <laughs> their role, I guess, for lack of a better word, there's a better word, but their role in folklore and um, their role in the culture um, across the globe. And I think, you know, just returning that kind of culture and folklore to modern generations will be really, really important. And um, yeah, so I was just, I was actually just looking while you were talking. I was looking at my, um, um, I have like a glossary of Taino words. So Tainos are the um, uh, native island people of the Caribbean, uh, who were, um, who were, um, wiped out. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like a gentle way to say it. who were really just wiped out and murdered uh, by, uh, the Spaniards. Um, but it, I have like, um, I've been putting together a, a glossary of Dino, um, words and they have like, I don't know, like 50 different words for fish, depending on which fish it was, obviously, because they were, you know, um, they were fishermen, they lived, you know, um, on islands. And I was just, I can't find it, but I could have sworn there was a word they had for sawfish. And I can't find it now, but um, I have to look for it. Um, because, you know, as we said earlier, the small tooth um, was, um, would have been, would have been the sawfish they were familiar with. Um, but yeah, they were no doubt familiar with them. And, um, I don't know how many, speaking for Puerto Ricans, I don't know how many Puerto Ricans are still familiar with sawfish. Um, so. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really surprised. So I, I mean, I, before I read this Nat Geo article, of course I had heard of sawfish. I'd pro I'd seen a picture of them or something. Um, did definitely did not know that there were five species. Yeah. And I definitely did not know they were so widespread and that they occurred in waters off the US. Um, but I definitely did not know how endangered they were mm -hmm. and you know how quickly the populations are declining. I mean <laughs> they don't even they don't even have any population estimates because you know how do you estimate population i mean they do mark recapture stuff but to cover to estimate a population of a species like this that's hard to detect across such huge areas they don't have solid numbers but it's clear that the trend is declining and i was just looking i'm just on the iucn's website right now looking at the um the different assessment information for each species and the ones that are currently um critically endangered which are the large tooth and the green soft tooth sawfish and the small tooth they all were previously um endangered and they were uplisted in 2006 to critically endangered and just it's really um i mean i like i feel like this has maybe been a common trend and things that we've said on the podcast and it's definitely, I'm very outspoken about it, but you know, these, some of these species, they could disappear. And the fact that they're flying under the radar like that, I mean, again, 
we're not fish people, so maybe fish people are more aware of this. But right, um, yeah. the fact that that this isn't a more publicized kind of thing. I mean, I hope this National Geographic article draws attention to it. But like you said, like they're not charismatic large mammals, so they don't get the attention. And um, it's just, I'm just continually disappointed that we're not making faster uh, strides in whatever publicity of conservation and stuff. You know, we're still stuck on elephants and lions mm-hmm. and rhinos. Not that those aren't important, but like if people don't even know that sawfish are endangered, how are they supposed to care about them? Um yeah, it's gotten to the point where like our messaging is anachronistic, like it's 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 dated and we have to we really have to change it and we have to make it more um I don't know what the word is, but um yeah, we have to move on and try something different because the messaging has been the same like you said for like the last 30 40 years um and we have we really need to focus more on these um these other animals you know the sawfish isn't a beautiful creature but it's really awesome looking and it's you know and that what makes it awesome looking it also is what makes it so unique um which is that rostrum um so yeah yeah and i like sort of like you said they just really have potential to be a flagship species because, and I mean, I'm sure there's some other species too, but I, I just, me personally, I'm really drawn to wetland habitats. Like I just love mm-hmm. wetland habitats. I love species that occur in wetlands and just like imagining like these river deltas and mangroves and stuff that, um, sawfish are in, mm-hmm. um, you know, like I said, they're earlier, they're being degraded. You know, there's pressure from human development in a lot of these areas. I, d- I doubt that anyone would look at a sawfish and be like, yeah, that's like, everyone would think it's cool, basically. Yeah. And that's why I think it just has such great potential, because if it has that like, wow factor, mm-hmm. you know, even though <laughs> I'm not, you know, that's sort of, um, hmm. What am I trying to say? Like all the animals that people care about have a wow factor. So that's just like uh-huh. contributing right. to the <laughs> <Yeah>. problem. <laughs> but at least like we'd be expanding from to different taxa. And then maybe we'll get to, you know, we care about animals that don't have a wow factor, like some mm-hmm. mouse or something. Um, yeah. But they just have so much potential because of that wow factor, I think. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, we, we need... Um, more flagship species for the for the ecosystems that they inhabit, um, and we've we've spoken about flagship species before. But in case anybody is not familiar with it, um, it's basically a you know a species um, that uh, I, w- I don't want to say represents, but yeah, kind of like represents a certain conservation, like e- certain ecosystems. So for example, um, like bison, like are kind of a flagship species for grasslands or something like. That. I'm not explaining it well. Like if you, if you protect, the idea is that if you put effort into conservation and protecting a a flagship species, the idea is that it's going to positively affect that ecosystem and the other species that it shares that ecosystem with. Yes, that was much more, (laughs) much better explained, but yes, exactly. And um, so, you know, right now, you know, coastal waters and, you know, we have some mammalian flagship species for coastal waters, you know, um, but not really many, many fish flagship species. So um, that would be really important to get. Yeah, Yeah. I'm just... And I'm hooked on sawfish. Like the more I read, just the more I'm interested. I, I want to do sawfish research. <laughs> <laughs> I wish that the eDNA thing could be like a citizen science oh thing. Like God, send me a kit. Amazing. I'll go to Mozambique. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. That would be amazing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just so cool. Like I think it's also just because I love the places that they occur. Like. Hmm. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Anyways, maybe after storks. Yeah, after storks, go from one like data deficient <laughs> species to another. I, yeah, I think that's also what yeah. what draws me to them is just the lack of information. Like, I want to contribute to filling those knowledge gaps. That's it's basically what I want to do with my life is fill knowledge gaps rather than study lions to death or study bears to death, even though there's always more to learn about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as these species that we don't know anything about, and as it is obvious at this point, sawfish, there's hardly anything known about them. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you have any questions or comments, uh, as always, we would love to hear from you. So feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. We're at Conservation Chronicles. You can also email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. We've had one listener email episode <laughs> so far, but it was a really good one, and I'd like to do more of those. Yeah, um, so even please- if you just say, like, you don't agree with us or you yeah. suck. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Just give us anything and um, we will respond. And um, speaking of of also, um, if you at your convenience, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts, um, just so we know how we're doing. And also, um, it uh, makes our podcast more visible, the more um, ratings and reviews it gets. Um, So yeah, thank you as always for listening and for sticking with us through this kind of awkward time that we've had. Um, but thank you. Oh, also you can visit our website. It's at conservationchronicles.podbean.com. You can listen to our episodes there as well. Yeah. And I, we, we probably don't say this enough, but if you do have anything, you any topic or subject mm-hmm. you'd like us to cover, you can email us with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as long as it's something that we can intelligently talk about, <laughs> <laughs> We we like we would like suggestions because sometimes it's hard for us to decide what we want to cover and stuff. So yeah, yeah. Um, send us an email. Yes. Okay. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.